So this morning I've got a very short passage and a very long sermon. And so um, I've got a lot of ground I want to cover, but I'd ask you to please stand with me as we look at our passage for this morning. Our passage is uh, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And as Pastor Joshua mentioned, I'm going to be I'm breaking away from, from the Gospel according to Luke. And in as today is actually Reformation Day. We don't normally preach the calendar, but um, I thought, you know what, doesn't that very often it falls, not very often it falls on a Sunday, so I'd take the opportunity um, to preach some, some foundational truths that, that uh, Reformation Day reminds us of. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of our, of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this precious passage of Scripture, one that you have used almost more than any other to break into history and to change the course of an entire continent. Lord, as the gospel was revealed and re-established and taught again, and as the gospel went forth from Germany, throughout Europe and around the world, as it gave birth to the missions movement, as it gave birth to many seminaries and many new churches and and gave new birth to many Christians. We praise you for this word. Father, I'm conscious of my inability to be able to communicate these things whatsoever, let alone to be able to communicate them in such a way that hearts would be changed and that where there is a dead heart, that life would be kindled. Where there is a dry heart, that the spark that's there would be fanned into a flame. Father, that your church would be built up, the church Christ for which you died. That your name might be exalted in our midst. I can't do any of this, but I'm confident in the power of your Holy Spirit to do this in and through my weak words. For the glory of your name and your name alone. Amen. On the evening of October 31st, 1517, a hammer rang out as German monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Each statement, each of those 95 theses was a critique of the unbiblical doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was officially a part. Soon after, he posted his, Luther's students took down the paper and printed it on the newly invented Gutenberg printing press. And then the document quickly was was spread throughout Germany and into the rest of Europe. And the Protestant Reformation was born. If you are here as a Christian this morning, you can thank God for Martin Luther because it was through his instrumentality that the gospel was recovered and spread through Germany, Western Europe, and around the world. 
Luther had entered the monastery of St. Augustine at Erfurt 12 years earlier at the age of 21. And one night he was caught in a lightning storm and fearing for his life, he made a vow to St. Anne that he would become a monk. Luther was a very dedicated monk, working harder than many of his fellows. He spent more time in prayer, more time in fasting, more time making confession, engaged in more self-deprivation than any others in the monastery. He says, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He says, all my brothers in the monastery knew me, who knew me will bear it out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. But the more that Martin Luther did these things, the more he felt condemnation for his sin. In 1510, Luther was sent on a pilgrimage to Rome. But when he arrived in Rome, he saw the, the corruption, especially that of the Roman clergy, their, their frivolity and their immorality, and he became disheartened. Nonetheless, he came to Pilate's stairway, supposedly the, the same stairs that Jesus had climbed during his trial before Pilate that had been transported, transported from Jerusalem to Rome. And he climbed those steps on his knees, saying a, a paternoster, an our, our Father prayer on each step and, and for good measure, kissing each step as he climbed up those stairs on his knees. He did so in, in hopes that he would would free some poor soul from purgatory, as Roman Catholic teaching promised. But Luther returned to Erfurt increasingly troubled. The next year, in 1511, in an attempt to help him assuage his troubled conscience, his superiors sent him to Wittenberg to teach in the seminary as he completed his doctorate in theology. But as he taught, through the scriptures, Luther became more and more and more troubled. In 1515, he began teaching through Paul's epistle to the Romans. In the words of biographer Ronald Baton, this would prove to be Luther's Damascus Road. Hear Luther's own testimony. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to me that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. Yet, he says, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith translated in the ESV as the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasp, Luther says, that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. He says the whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Luther, of course, is referring here to Romans 1.17. Let me read it again. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther had concluded that the righteousness of God that Paul speaks of here was God's justice in punishing sinners. Now, 
Now, judgment is certainly part of God's righteousness. But Luther realized that in this context, when Paul says the righteous shall live by faith, he's speaking of God's saving righteousness. The righteousness whereby God in His grace and mercy justifies sinners who have faith in Christ. It was at this moment that Martin Luther gave up trying to earn his own salvation by his own works and received God's saving grace by faith in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And for Luther, Romans took on a whole new meaning. In fact, the whole scripture took on a whole new meaning. It took on its true meaning. The true meaning, the true gospel came to light after being obscured by layers upon layers of Roman Catholic tradition. Immediately, Martin Luther was set free from his attempts to earn his salvation by his own works. From purchasing indulgences and pretended merits, merits conferred by bygone saints to get his own soul out of a fictional purgatory and so on. He was set free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That by faith, his sins were, were credited to Christ's account. And by faith, the righteousness of Christ was credited to his account. So Luther was now declared righteous before the living God. Luther set out to proclaim these truths within the context of the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to, to reform the church and to, to bring it back to the gospel that it had once believed and taught, but that had been lost. The good news of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and, and through the, the witness of, of Martin Luther and those who, who spread his teaching, the gospel spread far and wide. However, as you can imagine, Luther soon ran afoul of the church hierarchy. This led him in 1521 to the Diet of Worms, an assembly of powerful clergy and statesmen, including the Roman Emperor Charles V. Luther's inquisitor, the Archbishop of Trier, John Eck, confronted Luther directly. said, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? This is one of the most poignant moments in church history. In the face of certain excommunication and likely ex execution, by God's grace, Martin Luther stood firm. He replied, Since then, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer, I give you one without teeth and without horns. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest evidence, I cannot and will not retract, for we must never act contrary to our conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Were it not for a rescue through a feigned abduction at the hands of his friends, from a human perspective, Luther's light would have been extinguished. The Reformation snuffed out. He would have been killed. Nonetheless, it grew brighter. His friends whisked him off in secret to Wartburg Castle, where in hiding, he proceeded to translate the New Testament from Greek into German, the language of the people. Now this story, the story of, of Martin Luther and, and the Reformation is a fascinating story. The Reformation did not really begin with Luther, nor did it end with him. Men like John Wycliffe and John Huss paved the way for Luther, and men like William Tyndale and John Calvin followed after. Many of these men gave up their lives for the gospel. Now there's been at least four movies made in English about Luther and his story. And, and I would recommend that, that you watch one of them, except the 1974 version with Stacy Keach playing Luther. Keach was, was good in his role as private detective, 
Mike Hammer, but, but he makes a horrible Luther. But I would recommend that, that you watch one of those movies, maybe even later on tonight with your family. Martin Luther was used of God to reform the church. We are Protestants because of Luther's protest of Roman Catholic corruption of the gospel. The five solas are central to the Reformation. And each one of these five souls I'm going to talk about here repudiate Roman Catholic teaching and affirm the core doctrines of Christianity. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the five souls and, and to talk about what, what they mean. The five solas are, these are, are Latin terms, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. Again, five Latin terms. The, the word sola means alone. So we're talking about scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Scripture alone is our authority, and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what these five solas mean. So I'm going to define each one, and then we're going to walk quickly through Romans 1, 16 and 17, emphasizing the five solas. And I want you to see how each of the five solas are present in these two verses, and they're, they're there repeatedly. So this morning, instead of what I usually do, instead of exegeting the passage and then making application, I'm going to do it the other way around. I'm really going to give the application, and then I'm going to, going to more briefly do an exegesis of the passage at hand. I want to help you to understand what it means to be reformed and whether to, and to determine whether you are reformed. Now, I've heard many people wrongly say that that both from I've heard people say this who are both into believer believe in believer's baptism and in infant baptism that, that they would say they say that Baptists can't be reformed. That they believe that that the term reformed Baptist is an oxymoron that the words don't go together. But this is a, really a failure to understand Reformed theology, and it's a, a failure to understand church history. Because as important as baptism is, being Reformed is about a lot more than baptism. And so I, I want you to, to help, I want to help you understand, by God's grace, what Reformed theology is and, and whether you are actually Reformed. But I actually have a, a far more loftier goal than that, than simply determining whether you're Reformed. I want to help you determine whether you're actually a Christian. Your response to the five solas, among other things, will help you to determine whether you are truly saved. So then, an outline of the five solas. The, the first sola is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, now when we, you look at a list of the five solas, this is the first sola that's given and for an important reason. Because everything flows from the Word of God. From the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But the Roman Catholic Church taught and teaches that the Church alone has authority to interpret Scripture. And so popes are, are considered to be able to create doctrine and to, to give new revelation and to even render decisions infallibly. And popes and their councils are, are viewed as the, the only ones who are given authority or ability to interpret Scripture. But contrary to this, central to Reformed teaching is that the Scripture alone is the authority in the church. Scripture alone is over faith and practice. If I, as, a, as an elder in this church, as an office bearer in this church, teach something that is contrary to Scripture, you know what you have to do. You have to call me to repentance, and if I refuse to repent, I need to be brought before the church and removed. I am not the authority of this church. Pastor Joshua is not the authority of the church. And we're, we're a congregational church where the, the authority in the church actually rests in the members. But, but you are not 
ultimately the authority of the church. The Holy Scriptures are the authority of the church. We must filter everything through Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church was, was able to, to maintain control by only allowing Latin translations of the Bible, leaving the, the Scriptures out of the hands of the average layman. Soon after Luther, William Englishman William Tyndale wanted to put the Bible into the people's hands. So like Luther, he also set about translating the Bible into the, the language of the people, in, in his case, into English. Tyndale said, If God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do, speaking of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. He's saying that even a plowboy would know more about God through the Bible than even those who are at the upper echelons of the Roman Catholic clergy. Now, Tyndale was burned at the stake by Charles V, the same one who brought charges against Luther but not before he had managed to translate the entire New Testament into English and the first 14 books of the Old Testament. And he was burned at the stake for this because they didn't want the Bible in the hands of the people. His work was completed by Tyndale's friends, John Rogers and Miles Coverdale. And Tyndale's final prayer as he gave up his life on the stake was, was Lord open the King of England's eyes? God answered that prayer. And King Henry VIII allowed this, the distribution of the English Bible. Now, Tyndale may have been burned at the stake for his translation of the Bible, but England was set on fire as the Bible spread through the country and the truths of the gospel. And many, many people came to saving faith in Christ. In fact, we have a, a Christian heritage that, that comes through William Tyndale. So as much as, as we thank God for Martin Luther, we thank God for William Tyndale. It's because of, of, Martin, of sorry, William Tyndale and others that you have an English Bible. This is part of the work of the Reformation. We need to remember that, that the church did not create the Bible, but the Bible created the church. Very important. The church does not create the Bible, but the Bible created the church. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, the church was formed through conformity to the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is another key passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is our ultimate authority and is sufficient for faith and practice. So then to be reformed means to believe that the Scriptures are inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear. I won't spend a lot of time on these terms, but inspired. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. In the, in, in it's inerrant. In its original manuscripts, there are no mistakes. Every word is exactly what God intended it to be. It's authoritative. It, as I mentioned, it's, it's our, our sufficient guide for practice. We, our, our life and our doctrine is organized around the Word of God. It's sufficient. You don't need to go to so-called experts outside of the Bible in order to understand spiritual things. And it's clear. The fundamental truths of the gospel are clear, so clear that, that even a child can understand. But many churches, although they would claim to hold to these things, have in practice rejected these things. Now, if you were to, to ask a leader of a, of a progressive or a, a, a Church that's increasingly liberal, if you'd say, well, would you hold to the authority of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible, then, well, they would say, yeah, of course we do. But if you were to ask them on any one of a range of social issues, 
what their view is. Whether they're getting their cues from the Word of God or whether they're getting their cues from the culture, you'll see that very often that these churches have rejected the Word of God as their sole authority. Now we need to realize that that sola scriptura does not mean solo scriptura. We're talking about sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority, but we do not only go to Scripture. It's not no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. Now this this kind of of biblicism is is rampant in in the so-called fundamentalist churches. Where the Bible is viewed more as an encyclopedia and there's a a failure to to consider passages in their context in the, the broader context of Holy Scripture. It often leads to legalism and a a disregard for creeds and confessions. But it isn't just just the Roman Catholic Church and liberal churches and legalistic churches that attack the Word of God. Do you believe the Word of God in its entirety? Is the Bible your authority for matters of doctrine and, and life? Are you guided by God's word about God, about yourself and about the word, about the world rather? Are you seeking to continually conform your life to what is here in God's word? Again, this is, this is not a one-off. This is not something that you did back there. This is something that, that you do as a Christian every day. It's a continual submitting to God's word. It's a continual seeking to conform your, yourself and your life, your doctrine, your understanding to the Word of God. So that's sola scriptura. Next, sola fide. Sola fide, by faith alone. You are saved by faith alone. I'm going to move a little bit more quickly through, through the rest of these. Sola fide is referred to as the material cause of the Reformation. It's the central point. Sola fide is the central point of the debate between Christians and the Roman Catholic Church. Back in, in Luther's day, this was the case, and it, it's still the, clay, the case today, in dialogue and debate between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Now, now I'm not saying that, that Roman Catholics can't be saved. That I, I really believe that there are Roman Catholics who are genuinely saved. But this is in spite of, not because of, Roman Catholic doctrine. The Roman Catholic doctrine was was crystallized in the Counter-Reformation document called the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent teaches that sinners are justified, pronounced not guilty, through engaging in the seven sacraments. So through baptism and mass and last rites and so on, that they are justified before God. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It was this goes back to the middle of the 16th century and it's still official, the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church today. Furthermore, the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent teaches that that justification is not by faith alone, but that works necessarily cooperate with faith for justification. So it's not that you're saved by faith alone, it's faith plus works. And the Council of Trent anathematizes or condemns to hell anyone who would believe otherwise. But the Reformers taught the opposite. That justification comes about only through faith. That simply belief and belief in and trust in the finished work of Christ that a sinner is forgiven and declared righteous before the Holy God. So you can see why this is such an important doctrine. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Question 36 of the Baptist Catechism asks, What is justification? Answer? Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ 
imputed to us or credited to us, received by faith alone. So it was when Luther discovered, realized that the righteous live by faith that he was born again. This was when he turned from his works to faith. And we'll talk about it in a little bit. It's, it's not that, that the power is in faith. Faith's power is in its object, and the object of our faith is Christ. The object and power of saving faith is Jesus Christ. True faith, though, acts on what it believes to be true. True faith rests in Christ. Do you have this faith? Are you saved? Are you trusting that you are saved by faith alone? Or is there something that you feel you have to do to earn your salvation? And if you've done this, you've forgotten the gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote a whole epistle about it. If you're, if you're leaning that way, you need to, to take some time with Galatians. Are you resting in faith alone? Are you resting in faith alone for your justification? Again, or are you seeking to earn your salvation by good works or by anything else? You'll only be saved by faith alone. The third soul is solo gratia. Solo gratia, through, face, faith, through grace alone. You are saved through grace alone. And the issue here is that in our own strength, we do not have the power to save ourselves. In the 5th century, Augustine of Hippo, in his autobiographical book, Confessions, correctly taught this doctrine. He wrote, as a prayer to God, give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. He's saying that, saying, God, I can't do what you command. I can't do what you command. I can't do anything what you are command what you're commanding to me to do in my own strength. So please give me that. Give me what I need. Help me to know your commands and help me to walk in your commands. But British monk Pelagius countered that if God commanded something, then man must naturally, as in left to himself, must naturally be able to do it. And although earlier Roman Catholic councils had, had condemned Pelagianism, the, the teaching of Pelagius as heresy, by Luther's time, the Roman Catholic Church had actually adopted a, a form of, of semi-Pelagianism. That the believer is saved through a, a cooperative work of between, between God and the sinner. That God and the sinner work together for salvation. Humanist scholar Erasmus responded to Luther with his book on the freedom of the will. He, and Erasmus said that, that the main cause of our salvation is grace and the secondary cause is our will. But Luther responded to Erasmus with a seminal work, The Bondage of the Will, demonstrating from Scripture that man's will is fallen and that man will never be able to choose God apart from a work of God's grace in the heart of man, apart from regeneration. God sovereignly works in our hearts to make us willing. So, sola gratia, then, is talking about predestination. That God sovereignly chose who he is going to save, and that God supplies the power for their salvation. As Steve Lawson says, saving grace is sovereign grace. Now, this is often referred to as, as Calvinism, but, but as we've seen, this long predates Calvin. It, it goes back to Augustine, it goes back to the Apostle Paul, it goes back to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as well. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead men and women are powerless to obey. But Ephesians 2, 5, even when we are dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
Or Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. For as Jesus taught in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we discussed this last week, but as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And then Jesus went on to show that being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. You brought nothing to the table for your salvation apart from the sin that made it necessary. Now, there is an infinite, an infinite difference between your works as the evidence of your salvation and your works as contributing to your salvation as the Roman Catholic Church taught. This is really, again, it's the difference between true Christianity and Roman Catholicism. It's also the difference between true Christianity and, and every other religion and every cult. It's the difference between being saved and being damned. Are you looking to the grace of God alone for your salvation? Or are you somehow trying to contribute from your own ability? You can only be saved by grace alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Again, this is a continual looking. This is, this is again, it's not something that's back there. It's something that you continually do. You continually rest in the grace of God. Fourth, solus Christus. Solus Christus, in Christ alone, like the great hymn. You are saved in Christ alone. Christ alone is the object of our faith. Now, the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of Christ is, is actually orthodox. The, the Roman Catholic Church is actually correct it, it, in its, its doctrine of the Trinity, as outlined in the, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church also lines up with the, the Chalcedonian Creed as far as the, the, the humanity and deity of Christ. It's, it's orthodox in that sense. But the issue of solus Christus is not with the person of Christ, but with the work of Christ. Okay, not with the person of Christ, but with the work of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church relied and relies on a priestly system that really centers on the Mass. And if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church where they do a mass, that, that they believe that the mass is actually another crucifixion of Christ. And so this priest then is the mediator, they believe, of Christ's blood. And they're confusing that, that Christ is the fulfillment of the priesthood and actually that in Christ you and I are all priests. When Pastor Joshua and I preside over the Lord's table, we're not functioning as priests. Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest. And Jesus Christ was, he died once for our sins. You don't need to crucify Christ over and over and over again. When he gave up his life, he said, it is finished. All that has been, all that is necessary to achieve salvation for the elect, I have done. He's done it all. Hebrews 10, 12, when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. No more sacrifice. God the Son took on human flesh and fully obeyed God's law, loving the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. And then this love took him all the way to the cross. He became the sin bearer, bearing his people's sins, and being punished by God for his people's sins. And he gave up his life. He died. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and then ministered on earth for 40 days and then ascended bodily to heaven where he is now enthroned and interceding for you and for me. This is the heart of the gospel. The gospel is what saves us by faith in what Christ has done of our sins being credited to him and his righteousness being credited to us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ is applied to you. 
By faith in Christ alone, your guilt again is credited to his account and his righteousness is credited to yours. But the Roman Catholic Mass and the entire religion is an attempt to add to the work of Christ through works. They also believe that through a system of merits that the work of the saints could be applied to you. And this whole system of indulgences that, that was set up, you can see this in the, in the movie with, with John Tetzel who, who was, would go through the towns and, and put on these, these, these plays where, where he would, would try to terrorize people. But their, their loved ones who they taught was in, were in purgatory. And purgatory isn't in the Bible. There's no such thing as purgatory. And Tetsu said that when a, a coin in the coffer rings, a, a soul from purgatory springs. So you'd put your coin in the coffer, they would give you an indulgence, which would, which would apply the merits of past saints to your dead loved ones so that they could be sprung from purgatory. But salvation is in Christ alone. What more could anyone do to add to the work of Christ? And, and they still pray to these saints, and, and especially to Mary. Again, it's Christ plus works. But Acts 4.12 says emphatically, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. As I alluded to a moment ago, the, this whole Roman Catholic system and every other religion and every cult is a departure from salvation in Christ alone and a reliance on works. Every religion besides Christianity is based on works, whether it's the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, the five pillars of Islam, or the door knocking of Jehovah's Witnesses, or the baptism of the, of the dead for Mormons. It's all works-based salvation. Christ came and did the work that we don't have to work for our salvation. And thank God for that. Galatians 2.16 We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, from the Baptist Catechism, question 91, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Are you looking to Christ alone for your salvation? Okay, can you say with a glorious hymn, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. And once again, this is not a one-off. This is a continual, daily dependence upon Christ. And His perfect work is active and passive obedience. You can only be saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And then finally, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. You are saved to the glory of God alone. The glory of God is the focal point of your salvation. The glory of God is the ultimate reason why you are saved. An error at, at any one of the, the four points that we just discussed robs God of his glory. The glory of God is the purpose of the other four solas. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and gives them to us as our only authority for the glory of God alone. God gives you faith and justifies you by that faith for the glory of God alone. God saves you by his sovereign grace for the glory of God alone. Christ lived and died and was raised again and has ascended for the glory of God alone. And we see God's glory most powerfully 
displayed in the gospel as it is communicated to us in the word of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of God's attributes are most powerfully and clearly seen in the cross of Christ where, the, where God's holiness and justice are on display as are His love and His mercy and His grace. Through the gospel, we are now empowered to live life for the glory of God as we are conformed into the image of Christ as we've been predestined to be. Romans 8, 29. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So this then takes us to a, a bonus characteristic of the Reformed faith. Summed up in another Latin phrase. Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda. Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda. The church reformed, always reforming. Or semper reformanda for short. Semper, semper reformanda is, is not about making improvements to the church's doctrine. It, it doesn't mean like the, the spirit of the age tells us that progressiveness is good. Progressions in, in medicine and, and technology are often good. But progression in theology is almost always bad. Novelty is, is pretty much always heresy. Rather, founded on the once for all faith delivered to the saints, semper, semper reformanda means that we need to grow in the practice of true religion. As Robert Godfrey says, once the externals of religion have been carefully and faithfully reformed according to the word of God, the great need was for ministers to lead people in the true religion of the heart. Reformers saw the great danger of their day not as false doctrine or superstition or idolatry, but as formalism. The danger of formalism is that a church member could subscribe to true doctrine, participate in true worship in a biblically regulated church, yet still not have true faith. And I really think this is a danger in our circles that you can have impeccable doctrine, that you can dot all your theological T's and cross your theological I's, but your heart be far from Christ. And you're content to, to talk about theological principles as abstractions that, that don't transform your heart and your life. Now we're, we're seeing a, a major resurgence of, of false doctrine as well. As, as many churches have, have fallen to the, the temptation of, of the, the so-called prosperity gospel, the, the word faith movement, the, the new apostolic reformation. But I think in our circles, this is what we need to be careful of. It's not a matter of, of recovering sound doctrine, but of walking in what we know to be true. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to have right doctrine. Your heart constantly needs to be reformed. You need to, to strive to grow by God's grace in love for God and living for the glory of God. You are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Are you living life to the glory of God? Are you repenting when you fail to do this? Are you asking God for strength to, to help you to, to glorify Him more? Are you asking Him to make you more like Christ? Now, you aren't saved because the answer to these questions are, are the ones that I asked at the end of each section, each of the five solas. But your answer to these questions will help to reveal to you the reality of your salvation. Again, you are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. James says in James 2 that faith without works is dead. He says that you reveal your faith 
fireworks. Again, the, dis the distinction is between is between revealing your salvation by your works and relying on salvation by works. So then with all of that, that's the application. Let's then take a, a very quick walk through through Romans 1, 16 and 17. Again, take note of the five solas. They're all there. Paul begins verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, when you see a four in your Bible, you need to ask what it's there for. It points to the immediate context to what has just been said just prior to that word four. So here, look back at, at, at verses 8 to 15 where Paul says that he is, he is eager to see the church in Rome for mutual encouragement and he's eager to preach the gospel to Gentiles in Rome. Now, indirectly here, Paul is speaking about sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone, because, because there is no other gospel other than the one that is proclaimed in the scriptures. But Paul's main point here is that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Now, on a human level, you can understand why someone might be ashamed of the gospel. Paul, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 1.21, that the preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. He, in fact, glories in the cross. Galatians 6.14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul boasts in the cross. He says to the Corinthians, I strive to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And right away here we see soli deo gloria. There is no shame in the gospel. Rather, God's glory is in the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Maybe you need to ask the question another way. When was the last time that, that you spoke to somebody about Christ? When was the last time you you you, you told an, an unbeliever about salvation in Jesus Christ. When was the last time that you had an opportunity to speak to somebody about the gospel and you did not out of fear of what they might think? That's shame, being ashamed of the gospel. You need to ask God for forgiveness for that and ask him to help you to strengthen you for boldness. Because you will not stand before men and women on the day of judgment. You'll stand before Almighty God. And now, we will not be condemned by your failure to preach the gospel. Again, thank God. But don't you want to live your life for the glory of God now? Ask God to help you to be proud of the gospel, to boast in the gospel, for the glory of his name, for the salvation of the elect. Now Paul tells us why he's not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now gospel and power are two words that go together often in the scriptures, especially in Paul. The gospel is powerful. It's the means whereby God accomplishes the salvation of his people. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of God is where the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Leon Morris says the gospel is not just advice, it's power. It's God's power. It's not that the gospel brings power, it is power. When the gospel is preached, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. As I prayed at the outset, I'm not, when I get up here to preach, I'm not confident in my power. I've got no power. I'm confident in the power of God through the gospel for the salvation of his people. Salvation is monergistic. God accomplishes salvation. God, Paul here is not talking, he's now talking about, he's talking about sovereign grace. He's talking about sola gratia. He's talking about grace alone. God's grace is powerful to save. God does it all, and God is glorified. Soli Deo Gloria. And then just think about this. This Understanding that the gospel is power gives you confidence for your salvation. 
Because it's God's power and a work in you to, to bring you before Him in glory. You're not relying on, on your ability to, to hold on to Christ. Christ is holding on to you. He says, you're in my, in my Father's hand and I am in my Father's hand. Your salvation has been accomplished by God's power through His grace. It also gives you confidence for evangelism. That all you have to do is, again, by God's grace, proclaim the gospel, and by the gracious power of God, the elect will come to saving faith. It gives you boldness and confidence as you share the gospel with others. So the, this, this sovereign grace, Paul continues, is to, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice again, it's to everyone who believes. Paul is talking about faith. He's talking about sola fide. He's talking about faith alone. But faith is, is not just, just belief in. The devils believe and tremble. It's belief on. It's reliance upon Christ. Think about, about going to the airport to, to take a trip on a plane. Now you can believe that the airplane is mechanically sound. You can believe in the Bernoulli principle about lift, that the airplane will actually fly. You can believe that the pilot is competent to fly the plane. But you don't have faith in it until you board the plane and buckle up. That's what it means to have faith. Not just to believe in a set of facts about, about Christ, but to actually put your faith in Christ. To rely on Him and Him alone for your salvation. So then, with faith in Christ, you, you, again, you can believe in entirely orthodox Christology and soteriology. You can accurately believe who Jesus is and how someone is saved. But having faith in Christ means, again, putting your hope in Christ alone. This, of course, is solus Christus. And Christ is for Jew and Gentile. Now he says Jew first and then Gentile because chronologically the Jews came first, right? That God put his, his call upon Abraham and made him a, a type that would point to, well, he would be the first Israelite and he would point to the church. Now as Gentiles, we have also received the gospel. To everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. Again, this is a prominent theme in Romans. The, the, the unity of, of Jew and Gentile, the, the church in Rome was a, was a mixed church. In fact, a number of the epistles are actually dealing with the, the friction that took place between Jew and Gentile in local churches. There's a unity through the gospel in all of humanity. Black, white, male, female. For the elect of every race, there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. Salvation is inclusive. And we're talking a lot in our day about, about racism. But there's really only one race. The human race. Well, there are many nations, but the human race is the only race. Again, from the hymn, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. This is one of the reasons why we celebrate diversity in the church, not as an end to itself, but because Christ, by his blood, ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 5 9. And again, we see that this salvation is solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Okay, moving quickly here towards a close. Now verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In it obviously refers to the gospel. In the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God refers to his just character. Remember that this was the, the sticking point for Luther prior to his salvation. But the fact that, that through the righteousness of God refers here to the righteous, does not refer to the righteousness of God to condemn sinners. Rather, as F.F. Bruce tells us, the gospel tells us how men and women, sinners as they are, can come to be in the right with God. And second, how God's personal righteousness is vindicated in the very act of declaring sinful men and women 
righteous. In other words, in the gospel, we see how God can pronounce sinful men and women as righteous and still remain righteous himself. Proverbs 17.15 says that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. But in the gospel, God does both. Justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. He condemned Christ for their sins. And in this, he still remains righteous. His righteousness is revealed. Turn, please, to Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then he goes on in the, the next few verses to, to talk about how this righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, through the, the justification, being pronounced not guilty, through the redemption, being, being redeemed like a slave from, from, from sin, propitiation as Christ bore the wrath for us. It's all through Christ. And then in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness is glorified and God is glorified. Soli Deo Gloria. And then this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This, this simply refers to the, the centrality of faith, which according to John Murray, that this repetition here is, is to accent the fact that, that not only does the righteousness of God bear savingly upon us through faith, but also that it bears savingly upon everyone who believes. So it's through faith, and through faith for everyone. So then, sola fide, faith alone. And finally, Paul says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As it is written. When he says this, Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Sola scriptura. Paul is showing here that, that his teaching in, in, in Romans is, is not novel. It's not new. He didn't make this stuff up. He's saying that sola fide is there in the Old Testament as well. And, and he's there quoting the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4. This verse is also quoted in Galatians 3.11 and, and Hebrews 10.38. Habakkuk, in that context, was crying out to God. as his people were oppressed by wicked people. The question is how God could use a, a wicked nation for his divine purpose. And the answer comes that if, if God's people can look to that God's people can look to God in faith, God's righteousness will be revealed, even if from our perspective it takes a very long time. So Paul's application is that is that, like in Habakkuk, God's righteousness is revealed, but it's revealed to us through the gospel. And the gospel tells us, like the people in Habakkuk's day, to have faith in God. So then once again we see sola fide. Again, it was this phrase. The righteous shall live by faith. That God used to save Luther. And it was through this verse that through Martin Luther, the gospel was recovered, was rediscovered. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith. Now, Romans 1, 16 and 17 is, is really the, the introduction and the, the summary of Romans. I'm looking forward, Lord willing, one day to, to preach through Romans. Like the plan is after, after Acts, and when we finish Luke and then do Acts, I, I really it's our, our plan that, that I'll begin to preach through Romans. I'm excited to preach through Romans. Romans is my, my favorite book of the Bible. after that I can die. It might take me that long. Again, Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you want to understand Romans, look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's a, it's a summary of Romans, and, and really, it's a summary of the whole Bible. This is what the Bible is about. It's about the righteous living by faith. It's about through faith. The righteousness of Christ being credited to your account and your sins being credited to his. Again, it's about these five solas. 
is the foundational principle of the gospel. This is the good news. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, Martin Luther, you and I can be saved. It is by this principle that if you are a Christian, are saved, and if you are not a Christian, it's the principle by which you must be saved. So are you reformed? That's a good question. But are you reforming according to the gospel? That's a far better question. It will help you to determine the answer of whether or not you are truly saved. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the life of Martin Luther and the reformers who came before him and the reformers who came after. We thank you that, that we are that we have inherited this great gospel that came at great cost to many of these men, but it came ultimately at the cost of Jesus Christ. God the Son, truly God, truly man, who lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death so that we might become the righteousness of God. Help us, I pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit to be continually reforming according to the proclamation of the gospel to our own hearts. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim the gospel to others that your name might be glorified in our midst and through our ministry. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.